Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now, coming up in just a moment, civil rights and social groups came together with the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives to discuss policing in communities of color. Now, we know these conversations have happened before. What's different this time and what came out of that conversation? That's coming up next. But first, this the vaccine advisory panel to Atlanta's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is meeting right now to consider what to do with the Johnson and Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. Now, federal officials recommended providers stop administering the one shot vaccine early this month. Of course, this was following reports of severe blood clots in some women who received it. Health experts stress these events are exceedingly rare. Still, they want to be cautious. Only seven cases are reported among about 7 million people who actually received the shot. The vaccine panel has the authority to recommend lifting the pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, or they could authorize the shot for only a certain group of people. And we'll keep you posted. Regardless, officials say there will be enough vaccine supply for all Americans. You know, our vaccination program was never built on one vaccine. We have plenty of vaccine supply of Pfizer and Moderna. There are tens of millions of doses already out in the country of Moderna and Pfizer ready to be administered. And now, as we've talked about, all adults, all individuals 16 and over are eligible for a shot. Uh, so we have plenty of vaccine supply. Uh, to um, have all adults get vaccinated. That is Andrew Slavitt, the White House senior advisor on the COVID-19 response at a press conference earlier today. Now, he went on to say at this point, officials are shifting their focus to vaccinating harder to reach populations and making the vaccine more accessible. I noted a moment ago that 90 percent of Americans have a vaccine site within five miles of where they live. And we are working with states businesses, doctors, local pharmacies, and other partners to make it even easier for people across the country to get vaccinated. We took a very important step on this front earlier this week by calling on all employers to give paid time off for vaccination and announcing a tax credit for small and medium-sized businesses to do this more easily. Now, meanwhile, here in Georgia, health officials have said vaccine hesitancy, especially among white rural communities, still remains a challenge. Charlton County is in southeast Georgia. It's among the least vaccinated counties in the state at less than 10 percent. Governor Brian Kemp spoke to a business roundtable in Charlton and urged folks to get the shot. And afterwards, he told reporters of his visit. We've been doing stuff with private sector partners, you know, large employers, 
and continue to do things like that with different constituencies, whether it's farm workers or whoever. we gotta, we got to start going to them, and a lot of the locals are already doing that. Now, the governor says the state's strategy is simple. They want to shift to a focus on smaller vaccine programs through local churches and doctor's offices. And this is opposed to the mass vaccination sites where demand has dropped. So at this time, here are your numbers. 5.5 million vaccines have been administered. That's about 22 percent of Georgians being fully vaccinated. The total number of cases confirmed since last year. We're still at eight. We're still in that 800,000 mark. We're at 800 and 72,396, 17,304 Georgians have died due to the virus. The total number of hospitalizations now 60,881. And some other news now, the University System of Georgia is putting a pause on its search for a new chancellor. Thursday's announcement means the system may choose an interim leader if outgoing Chancellor Steve Wrigley retires as scheduled at the end of June. Now, this move comes amid public opposition to the prospect that former Republican governor and U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue was going to be next. Now, this means that a lack of a chancellor could delay selections of new presidents for six institutions. That includes Georgia State. And so now we'll all just have to wait and see. And finally. At the intersection of hip-hop and funk, music is the pioneering group Digital Underground. I know, I saw them in concert. The West Coast group combined rap, sampled Parliament Parliament Funkadelic, included jazz riffs, and was led by musician and songwriter Shock G, a.k.a. known as Humpty Hump, real name Gregory Jacobs. This group also helped put rapper Tupac on the hip-hop scene. Considered unique and whimsical, under the creative direction of Shock G, Digital Underground cemented its place in hip-hop. Well, Shock G died last night. He was 57 years old. And in his words, do what you like. This is Closer Look. Just do what you like. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It's the first line in former president. President Barack Obama's task force on 21st century policing. And it says, quote, trust between law enforcement agencies and the people they protect and serve is essential in a democracy. Close quote. Now, at the urging of then President Obama, the task force came up with some recommendations in identifying what they call best practices and offering policing practices. Now, as to what worked and what didn't, well, that will always be debated. And recently, civil rights groups and social groups came together with the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives to talk about policing and, communi- and communities of colors and other issues. And like I said earlier, we know these conversations have happened before. 
We want to know what's different this time. Well, I'll ask my next guest. Linda Williams is a former deputy assistant director for the United States Secret Service, a professor of practice at Middle Tennessee State University in the Department of Criminal Justice Administration. And she currently serves as the president of Noble, which is the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. She joins me now to talk more about what took place with the meeting and all this and a range of other topics. Linda Williams, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, good afternoon, Rose, and thank you for having me. Let's begin with, uh, before I'm going to play a cut from Vice President Kamala Harris, but before I get to that, I just want to get your thoughts when we talk about policing reform, because the Department of Justice sees as two different topics, police reform and policing reform. How do you see that? The difference? You know, we're at a very tumultuous time in our history of policing. If ever there's a time that we need to reimagine and reform policing, the time is now. Um, this is for everyone that are serious about talking about change, all the stakeholders, it's time to revisit police policies and procedures, um, even training, recruitment, and even supervision. So we have to change the way that we're doing policing to make it more community-oriented. So change the way we are doing policing. I want to play this clip of Vice President Kamala Harris speaking directly, speaking shortly, rather, after the Derek Chauvin verdict. Today, we feel a sigh of relief. Still, it cannot take away the pain. A measure of justice isn't the same as equal justice. This verdict brings us a step closer. And the fact is, we still have work to do. We still must reform the system. So the vice president says a measure of justice doesn't equal justice. Ms. Williams, your thoughts on what she had to say? And she's right. You know, for too long, we've been grieving too long. Too many lives have been lost. And there's no more time for delay. Um, let's, we have to first acknowledge what's going on in our society. And the underbelly of it is systemic racism, that there's a dual justice system in this country. And until we have those uncomfortable uh, conversations and bring it to the forefront, she's exactly right. One check does not change. It's a good step in accountability, but we still got a whole lot of work to do. And before we get into that recent meeting that you were a part of, for our listeners who are not familiar with Noble, uh, can you briefly talk about the history and the mission of this organization? Since 1976, when Noble was created, we serve as the conscience of law enforcement by being committed to justice by action. We're just as relevant today as we were 45 years ago. NOVA has over 3,800 law enforcement chief executive officers, minority black, uh, through every rank and file of our uh, law enforcement that's on the local, uh, state, and federal level. When you talk about being the conscious of law enforcement, I can hear listeners saying, well, what does that mean? It is that, that litmus test to call it out for what it is, to, you know, to applaud the good, but challenge that, that you know, the status quo. We got to realize and, and have that conversation that, you know, America and even policing was not created on a level playing field. Even just the history of policing mm-hmm. started with police patrols. And as we still fight to get those rights, those, that underbelly still exists. And so we call out those injustices and we realize that our unified voice is our collective and our strong voice. 
who makes up this organization? When we say we hear law enforcement executives, but we're not just talking about those who may be, you know, police officers or or chief of police. Is this a collective of anyone who is involved in just the, the judicial system, the legal system, the police, anybody? So it started out as a police organization. Over 3,800 members, like I stated, are chief executive officers throughout the United States. And it started out as a predominantly African-American uh, organization, but our membership uh, today uh, includes, you know, nationalities from all over. So we have uh, law enforcement practitioners. We have students. We have a uh, different levels of associate um, uh, support. And, of course, the most executive level are the uh, regular membership. And Ms. Williams, let me ask you this, because you were a deputy sheriff right here in Augusta, Georgia, uh, not far from Atlanta. And if you don't mind me asking, did you ever have a situation where you had to draw your weapon or you fired your weapon upon someone? So I did have to uh, draw my weapon, but then you're making me go back a lot, a lot, a lot of decades ago. But you know what? But I do remember when I graduated college and I had aspirations in going into law enforcement. I did, ideally, I wanted to be FBI, mm-hmm. um, but the trajectory changed. But I had to get law enforcement experience. So when I graduated, I moved to Augusta, Georgia with my sister then. And so I was a deputy sheriff. So I was only there for two years. But what I do remember, Rose, in 1986, mm-hmm. the Ku Klux Klan demonstrated and marched down the main streets in Augusta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Now, they couldn't conceal their face. But, you know, I'm a daughter of the South. You know, I'm native of Memphis, Tennessee. But I never would have thought as a young adult that I would be looking at that. And then we fast forward 40 years na- later. They might have changed their names, but it's the same ideology. Do you feel that the community, did they have a trust in, in folks? Did you feel like you had developed, you know, it was two years. Did you feel like you had developed trust from the community? And I do. You know, it was a different time. Um, you know, thank God for body cameras. Thank God for cell phone coverage. Because some some of these things have always, let's, let's say these things have always existed. Mm-hmm. Of course, we were being, you know, put on front street in high definition now. So even then, when I came up long, long, long time ago in the 1980s, law enforcement was still considered a noble uh, profession. People respected, you know, law enforcement. Even if, you know, you didn't agree with the police, you Mm -hmm. were respected. Nowadays, all of that is being challenged because people do not respect what they don't trust and respect. You all, I imagine, was this part of the conversation you all just, you participated in? It was called Peace, Police Engagement and Community Education. What was at the core of this this conversation that you all came together with some civil rights organizations? I believe uh, civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump, I think he participated in the conversation, I'm not sure. But what what was at the core of this that you all talked about? Sure, I'm sorry. Noble partners with numerous organizations, like you said, whether it's nonprofit, civic, and all of that. So over three years ago, Noble uh, signed a partnership with Lynx Incorporated, uh, the Peace Initiative. It stands for Police Engagement. I'm sorry, yeah, Police Engagement and Community Education. And it's just that that uh, we go out into community, we have those real conversations, we call out the injustices, and of course, through our collaborative networking, we address these. That was a dynamic, dynamic workshop, I mean, forum. Uh, not only was it Ben Crump, it was Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP, Chief Ramos uh, out of Atlanta, and, of course, Ben Crump. Uh, and, of course, the national, international president, Tim Jeffries of the Lynx. 
but it was hosted by the Buckhead Cascade City uh, chapter mm-hmm. of the Lynx. So this was a powerful thing. This is the first time under my, my reign that we have had such a robust conversation. But it's the start of many continuing because now, you know, people want to hear and know what's going on. Don't hide the truth underneath the rug. Let's talk about it. And what can we do collectively? The links are a strong, respected organization in this country. Noble is respected in law enforcement and across the country. And so with these two powerful voices coming together uh, through our network and through all our membership, um, it's time for a change. And again, I said our unified voices are our strength. Well, how do you take your unified voices, you just said is your strength, how do you take that and how do you make sure it turns into an actionable outcome? Because one will argue you all, it's great to have you all, you know, you know, leading the cry here, but it may come down to policy or legislation or what have you. So how do you all measure then the effectiveness of this unified voice? Right. And with all of those unified voices, with those strategic places, and as you said, we strongly push and encourage Congress to pass the George Floyd Policing Act. Uh, we have, you know, we have partnership uh, with Congress. We have with the White House, with DOJ. So not just talk, just put it into action and through our judicial system, make it accountable. You know, even as we testified before, my predecessor uh, testified before Congress, we have what we call the Noble First Four, where tenants that were extracted from the George Floyd and Policing Act, where we pre- we prohibited chokeholds, where we uh, said that it's necessary that police officer render medical aid, uh, police officer intervene when inappropriate is no longer needed, and de-escalation training. So these are tangible things, and although they have not been put into law, a lot of our constituents, you know, over half of the major cities in the United States are led by law enforcement personnel that are noble members. And so these acts are being put into place, even though it has not been solidified by Congress as such. So we have, you know, those stakeholders that we partner with. You know, there's nobody that we don't sit at the table with, talk to us. And as we're invited to DOJ, as we are invited to the White House, this is our voice. And we put that behind that as they ask us to do things that it's a, uh, you know, it's a reciprocity to let's get this right. Last summer, what came out of that also, we heard about defunding the police. I know depending on whom you ask, it can be problematic. Some say this is a, a step forward, but also in understanding what defunding the police looks like in terms of not giving any financial support to police departments because we know they need them. But it's about taking some of the money and putting it toward I guess what you could call uh, wraparound services or other services within or for the the deplete the police departments and the community. Do, what's your your viewpoint around that whole notion of defunding the police in terms of taking money to allocate it elsewhere? Thank you so much for that. You know, one of my signature agenda items was the reimagining law enforcement. I established a task force that produced a report, uh, and that report has you know even as we speak is you know on the president's desk is in DOJ. We're meeting with the attorney general right now. And so when we talk about defunding, if you ask my students, they say do away. But I think Professor Williams has taught them that we can't live in a lawless society. But if you talk to my me and my colleagues as an executive, we cannot, you know, we don't need to strip the police officers, the police departments of their resources. We need to realign those or even re- reappropriate additional funding with our social services as 
law enforcement deal with a myriad of things and there's an over-reliance on law enforcement, let's partner with social services, with the mental health you know, uh, uh, departments. Let's talk about homelessness. Let's mm-hmm. talk about drugs together. And, you know, and let's have a mitigation team that when law enforcement goes out, that, you know, we automatically are making that contact with these people on call to come in with us. We can't take law enforcement out because, unfortunately, a lot of incidents have some, you know, criminal or have some propensity of danger. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you cannot just take it out and give it to a system that is not built and fortified it. So it's a collective effort. And that's why Noble meets with all our stakeholders on every level. Let's get this right. Let's serve the community. Let's stop being this warrior and this occupying force that has come in and rule. And not, you know, instead of being the guardian, that law enforcement is respected in the community. We respect those people and they respect us. And that's how we'll continue to grow under that arc of community policing. And finally, as we wrap up, I got about just 30 seconds here, but I want to get your thoughts on whether or not President Obama's that task force on 21st century policing, is that still relevant? Can you use some of those provisions today? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we stand on. That's our cornerstone. Our members played into that. You know, the last administration set it down. They wouldn't have picked it up, swept it off, and put it in place because that is tangible and, and, and real, real sustainable change. All right. Linda Williams, former Deputy Assistant Director for the U.S. Secret Service, also Professor of practice at Middle State, Middle Tennessee State University in the Department of Criminal Justice Administration, but also the current president of Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Thank you so much for taking the time, Ms. Williams. I really appreciate it. Good information. We'll have you back on the program. And thank you for having me. Conversations that matter to the community. That's why we exist. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. According to the U.S. Department of Education, there are just about 107 what we call historically black colleges and universities throughout the nation. And 228,000 students are enrolled at these institutions. Now, did you know that Atlanta is home to six recognized HBCUs? Morehouse College, of course, Morehouse School of Medicine, Morris Brown College, Spelman College, Clark Atlanta University, Interdenominational Theological Center, just to name a few. And the history of HBCUs are so significant. We all know that. Well, now there comes a new program that's going to help in terms of leadership. It's called the HBCU Executive Leadership Institute, and it's coming out of Clark Atlanta University. So joining me now to talk more about this is Dr. Phyllis Worthy. Dawkins, the former president of Bennett College and the lead consultant on curriculum development for the HBCU Executive Leadership Institute and the Clark Atlanta University president. I haven't seen him in a long time since the pandemic, Dr. George T. French, but he promised he was going to come back. And I'm still waiting on my T-shirt. So I'm going to start with Dr. Dawkins first. And Dr. French, I may let you talk. I don't know. Welcome to the program. T-shirts on the way, Rose. <laughs> Thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Dr. French, let's, talk, let's start with you for a moment, because when you were here and you talked about uh, the importance, obviously, of HBCUs and preparing leaders for the future. And now we're talking about a different path, executive leadership. Um, and I remember reading somewhere where someone said that it was tougher for HBCU colleges and, inst- and, and universities 
to find, this was the word they used, to find or I should say uh, campaign for more folks who want to be presidents and, and want to be part of the executive staff. Do you agree with that? Is, are you all having a challenge? And then I'll ask well, uh, Ms. Dawkins in a moment. Rose, listen, it's good to see you. I, I, I know that you've done well during pandemic. We did visit with you just before pandemic, but I'm so glad to be back with you. When we look at the data, uh, Rose, in, in the 1970s, financial pressures actually increased institutions' need for higher education leaders mm -hmm. who had experience. So beginning in the 1970s, the higher education community really began to recruit presidents that already had higher education experience. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the fact that between 2010 and 2014, the average tenure of HBCU presidents was 3.3 years, three years and three months. While at all institutions, the average tenure was seven years. And in 2006, the average tenure for all higher education presidents was 8.5 years. So we see a precipitous decline in the tenures of presidents nationwide at HBCUs and PWIs alike. So there's a, there is a paucity of leadership, and that's what we so seek to address with Eli. Dr. Dawkins, let me bring you into the conversation. You heard what Dr. French just had to say, you know, your experience in all of this. Uh, why do you think we've seen this decline? Or why is there such a disparity between HBCUs and the predominantly white institutions in terms of the tenure of, of presidents? Well, uh, let me pick up on what Dr. French just said. Uh, in 2017, when they did a comparison between historically black colleges and PWIs, predominantly white institutions, uh, they discovered that the average length of service for an, for an HBCU president was 3.3 years mm -hmm. uh, compared to seven years during the same uh, year. And so um, I'm not sure that we have problems getting or recruiting uh, um, people for to serve as presidents at historically black colleges we have problems with them staying mm -hmm. at historically black colleges. And so the ELI program uh, is this to enhance that by providing this, uh, the fellows, the potential mm -hmm. fellows, the skills that they need to survive. You know, Dr. Dawkins, I don't doubt that you all will be able to provide, help them with their skill set. But here's, a, mm -hmm. here's an interesting optic to this, too. And since we're all talking, as we say, you know, we keep it real. We know the plight of HBCUs and we know that there this finances is always an issue. We know that. Do you think right. also because of some unique challenges to HBCUs that that sometime might be a caution, throw up a caution flag for some folks? And, and make a decision not to even, you know, apply for whether it's president or another executive position at HBCU. Do you think there's some merit in that? And I'll start with you, Dr. Dawkins. Yes, uh, I'm pretty sure there is some merit in there. But now is the time. This is a pivotal moment in our history, a time for a new president to come in to achieve, to achieve renewed stability financial stability to help us grow at our institutions, at our institutions while also preserving our rich history mm -hmm. and propelling our missions to provide opportunities for a more social mo mobility of 
the institution. So this is a pivotal time in history. And this is the moment that calls for an executive leader that is agile, mm -hmm. that is nimble, that has an entrepreneur spirit. And so this is a good time. We've received a lot of dollars into HBCUs this year mm -hmm. to help them uh, to become more financially safe. So this is a good time to enter into an HBCU as a president. And I apologize, we are having some audio issues, so folks, please bear with us. Dr. French, let me ask you something. Have you had folks call you and say, you know, they, they call you George because they know you. They say, George, I'm thinking about maybe taking this job as a president, but I don't know. What do you tell them? And if they have those concerns, what have those conversations been like? Because you, you've been in this position, you've led institutions, you're leading one now. So you of all people would know. Yes, Rose. I'm, I'm one of the I have the privilege of serving as one of the longest tenured presidents uh, in the nation, a black or white now, having done about 15 years in Alabama and in my second year in uh, at Clark Atlanta University. So I, I have seen a lot. It's given me um, calls to actually do research in this area. And that research really points and reinforces what President Dawkins just noted. It's really, there's really not a paucity of individuals who are interested. There right. are enough, in, we get hundreds of applications mm -hmm. for these positions. The question is how well prepared with hard skills and the soft skills are these individuals to meet these unique challenges. These leaders, Rose, are called to be multi-dimensional. They have to be multi-dimensional leaders and we have to be able to navigate a range of challenges. Yes, money, finance, that's always a challenge, mm -hmm. but sometimes what precipitated the financial woe was the instability in leadership. So there's a correlation that we see with Executive Leadership Institute where we actually address the issues that these presidents will have to face and those challenges once they reach campus. How do we do it? We bring in seasoned past presidents that actually had long tenures and experiences in these positions to serve as mentors and on our advisory board. I actually have a, a question from a listener here, and, and I, I love when our listeners, because they're listening and they just email me, and those that who somehow get my cell phone number, send me a text. These, Dr. Dawkins, this is for you. Are you all stressing that these next wave of leaders should come from already an HBCU background or a corporate background? I think that's a very good question. Yes, that's a good question. We're looking for high-level executive leaders at the dean's level or higher. They can come from historically Black colleges, predominantly white institutions, but with a commitment to participate in the executive leadership program where we will provide them the skills and knowledge and dispositions they need to survive and work at a historically Black college. And so is that commitment to historically black colleges and the willingness mm -hmm. to go through this professional development program that we have established. And we're going to talk about that in just and a Rose. moment. No, one second. Let me get this out, Dr. French. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Phyllis Worthy Dawkins, former president of Bennett College. And she's a lead consultant on the curriculum development for the HBCU Executive Leadership Institute. I'm also joined by Clark Atlanta University President Dr. Dr. George T. French. And we're talking about this institute. Dr. French, go ahead and pick it up. My apologies. Hey, thank you, Rose. I wanted to go back to the first part of the question that you asked me because I think it's very important. I do get a lot of calls from individuals who ask me, 
do you think I should go for a presidency? Is it something that I would enjoy? Is there something, is it something that could make a difference? I tell them absolutely yes. If you uh, have the passion for higher education and if you want to make a difference, why not go to the top? Why not go to, to sleep at night planning? Why not wake up in the morning with the vigor and, and vitality, knowing that you're going to go on to a campus like, like the Atlanta University Center, Morehouse, Spelman, Clark Atlanta <laughs> University, Morehouse School of Medicine, and you see these students from around the world, and they have passion in their eyes, and you have the ability to effectuate change and make sure that they are on the trajectory for success. And you do that because you lead the faculty, you lead the staff, and you represent the to the community what higher education is all about as a president. So absolutely, I tell them, go for it. Dr. Dawkins, you are charged with leading the curriculum here. What what went into this and what can you share with our listeners about what the, I guess we should call them fellows, what the fellows, what are you going to take them through here? Yes, uh, we have spent just over, well, just about two years developing a competency framework. And that framework consists of 13 competencies Mm -hmm. around six areas. And those six areas are serving the mission, okay? Looking at fundraising, financial stability, and also academic excellence. And then also around creating capacity looking at navigating board governance and building a high-performing team, as well as leading change. Mm -hmm. And this time, during this pandemic, how do you handle the crisis that we're in? Mm -hmm. So looking at leading through uncertainty and uh, a crisis, as well as addressing uh, educating for racial and social justice. And so we have three other areas, but that's an exa- those are examples of the 13 competencies. When you mentioned the racial and social justice, because that was my next question, if folks don't know the importance of HBCUs during the civil rights movement, and so many of those students, young too, participated mm-hmm. in the civil rights movement, you all see that this is now a time, and, and even last summer, you know, there was so Many protests that were organized and rallies that were organized right here. Students that went to Spelman and students that that went to Clark Atlanta and at Morehouse. So you see that being also something that if someone wants to be a university president at a, at a or a college president at HBCU, they need to embrace that and absorb that. And either one of y'all can take of that. Of course. Uh, yes. Um, Dr. French, I'll let you take it first. Well, well thank you, Madam President. I, I would say that. Um, we have a history. When you look at the fact that W.E.B. Du Bois was a faculty member at mm-hmm. Atlanta University, where he did the, the, the predominant um, uh, mass of his work in sociology, where he actually studied social justice issues, both in Atlanta and Philadelphia, and came back with conclusions for our community. W.E.B. Du Bois said to us and says to us in 2021, yes, we need to march. Yes, we need to protest, but we also need a contextual framework. We need to have practice and we need to study theory. 
Muhammad, um, Martin Luther King Jr. was so successful because he studied the theories of Mahatma Gandhi and implemented in the streets within the United States. And that's what the academy does today. We, we merge and have the confluence of theory and practice as we help to, to effectuate social change. Dr. Dawkins, what do yeah. you want to add to that? Yes, and to that point, part of the professional development sequence under Educating for Race and Social Justice requires a commitment for advancing awareness and understanding of social and racial um, inequities. And to do that, we have to uh, teach the fellows how to promote that systematically uh, to ensure equity across all structures and practices on our campuses. And so that's part of one of those competencies that the fellows will leave with. Mm -hmm. And really it's one of those competencies that we are also developing a micro-credential uh, so that they can leave not only with their certificate, with, but they will also leave with micro-credentials in certain companies. And, and so, Dr. Dawkins, this first, this inaugural group of fellows, when will they start? Mm -hmm. And when will they, in through your, I guess, through your lens, when will they be ready to apply somewhere? Yeah. Well, uh, we launched a program last Friday, April 15th. Uh, the application process closes May 15th. And the actual program starts in June. Mm -hmm. uh, next week on April 28th. We have a Q&A session with Dr. French, Dr. Sullivan uh, from the Morehouse School of Medicine. He's one of, he's our uh, uh, chair. He's the chair of our advisory committee, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Parham and Dr. Jolly from the Council of Past Presidents. And so we welcome people to learn more about the program on April the 28th from 3 to 4.30. And they can just go to our website to sign up for that. And so once they're selected as a fellow, the program, the seminars will run from June uh, through December. Mm -hmm. They will be virtual. And hopefully we can return to a face-to-face -face environment <laughs> so that they have the opportunity to visit Clark Atlanta University, as well as the other institutions in the AU Center. All right, and we just got about a minute left. Dr. French, what will be your opening message to these fellows about the importance of not just maybe one day pursuing a presidency at an HBCU, but what you hope they get out of this, this time that they're in this institute? Well, Rose, I, we will emphasize the fact that uh, this competency and performance-based program will meet the needs, will we'll give them tools for their toolkit as they prepare to go out into the future. Uh, what we look for is the, the passion. We look for you first to have the passion. Once you have the passion mm -hmm. through this competency and performance-based curriculum, we will prepare you. Just be excited, um, come, um, prepare to learn, and prepare to serve our community. All right. Clark Atlanta University President Dr. George T. French. I was also joined by Dr. Phyllis Worthy Dawkins, former president of Bennett College and the lead consultant on curriculum development for the HBCU Executive Leadership Institute, which will be housed at Clark Atlanta University. Thank you both for taking the time. We want to bring you all back, bring some of those fellows back to see how their experience uh, has been. So thank you. Thank you both. Thanks, Rose. Good seeing you. Thank you.
The way to support the quality programming you're hearing this hour is by donating to WABE. Hello, everyone. I'm Rose Scott. It is our spring member drive, and we're asking our devoted listeners, that would be you and you and you, to become WABE members. Now, a sustaining gift of $10 a month protects our editorial independence. It also allows us to tell Atlanta's stories. But we tell these stories by inviting folks to be part of the conversation. It makes us all stronger together. Maybe you don't know this, but 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta area. We rely on this community, and that's why we need your help. Become a sustaining member at wabe.org slash donate. And I'm joined this hour by Jamie Green, our multi-platform senior producer. Jamie, welcome. Thank you, Rose. You know, right now in this hour, we're asking you to give because you appreciate and you value WABE. You know, one way to show how much you value this station is to become a sustaining member. When you set up a monthly gift, say of $10 a month, it allows us to have a better sense of what money we can rely on. And you'll be satisfied knowing that you're constantly supporting WABE. So become a sustainer right now today by visiting WABE.org or pick up that phone and call 678 558-9090. Hi, I'm Stephanie Stokes, a reporter at WABE. I cover housing issues in and around Metro Atlanta. Last year, I worked on a series about predatory investors in Atlanta's gentrifying neighborhoods. We found a lot of longtime homeowners were selling their properties to these investors and for prices that were much less than the properties were worth. Using sales data, we showed how often this really happened and interviewed homeowners about their experiences. This took almost two years. But when we finally got the stories out, they really resonated with people. The Atlanta City Council even ended up passing a new law, trying to regulate these investors, all because of this reporting. Thanks so much for listening and offering your support. You know, maybe you remember this series that Stephanie Stokes produced. It's important to emphasize that her reporting on this series took two years. And I can tell you that's what it takes. That's why she took time. She took time with her editor, her producer, and lots and lots of footwork. I know. I've been there. We do it. We do it all the time. Think about it this way. WABE is a public service broadcaster. We understand our obligation to report, reveal, and enlighten. When you give to WABE right now, you know what you're saying? You're saying this local reporting is important. Please give to support it right now at WABE.org slash donate. And thank you so much. You know, and of course, Rose, you constantly cover housing issues and the inequalities that have formed as our city's real estate market skyrockets. And that's what makes Closer Look such a vital part of the overall programming you get at WABE, something I love about it. And there's no better way to support Rose's show than to become a WABE sustaining member. That way, you'll never need to worry about when your membership expires. To become a sustaining member, think about how much WABE is worth to you, how much you love Closer Look. $10 a month goes a long, long way into helping programs like Closer Look, but donate what you can afford. That important part is what makes becoming a WABE member so appreciative. It only takes a few minutes to make your donations, so please call to 678-553-9090 or go online at wabe.org. When you give to WABE, we'd like to send you a gift in return. How about one that can help improve short-term memory and is also fun? It's the brand new WABE Jigsaw Puzzle featuring the Forever I Love Atlanta design by India Nabarro. 
The powerful stories you hear on WABE are sustained by you. So, please give and pick up the brand new WABE Jigsaw Puzzle at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you. Got to get one of those jigsaw puzzles. Yes, thank you. We need your support. We know you value WABE. So please take the time to donate right now. For the in-depth, unbiased news and information you rely on, make a gift right now at wabe.org slash donate. Let the reasons you listen be the reasons you give. It's really easy. Just head to wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. And on behalf of the entire Culture Look team, we say thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who made a donation, who showed their support during this hour of Closer Look, which I always say, as you know, is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's show, it is always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcast, we hope that WABE and Closer Look is all a part of that. And Barry Truths and my man Sam Whitehead with Did You Wash Your Hands? So yeah, all the podcasts are there. And remember, again, you can make your support at wabe.org slash donate. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights now at 7 p.m. And of course, we have a podcast like everybody else. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.